Voices of Children. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the May 2nd, 2022 edition of Week to Week, the political roundtable from the Commonwealth Club. I'm John Zipper, your host for Week to Week and the Vice President of Media and Editorial for the Commonwealth Club. It is great to see you. I mean, I can't really see you because the lights are shining in my eyes. It's great to hear you clapping. It's great to know you're there. Yeah. (laughs) Conceptually, you're here in the room. Glad to have you here. Uh, also glad to have the folks listening and watching online. But uh, it's kind of nice to see us all kind of slowly get out of our hibernation from the pandemic and come out. It's like in Washington, they held their, uh, their first White House Correspondents' Dinner for the first time in two years. And it gave President Biden his chance to describe this audience of journalists as, quote, the only group of Americans who have a lower approval rating than I have. <laughs> I think he enjoyed being there. Well, let's get started by showing some approval for our panelists tonight. I'll start on the far end with Dan Schnur. He's a professor at UC Berkeley's Institute of Governmental Studies, Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Public Policy, and the University of Southern California's Annenberg School of Communications. Is Can you leave something for somebody else? <laughs> Jeez. He's also the host of the podcast, or the webinar, excuse me, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus. So welcome back, Dan. I don't have. I don't think I have that many titles. Um, yeah, I'll own. stretch it. I'll stretch okay. it. Marisa <laughs> Lagos is the correspondent for California Politics and Government at KQED. KQED stands for... Um, and she's also the co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. So good to see you again, Marisa. Thank you for having me. When I need to, I'm going to go to this guy to help get a professorship. <laughs> uh, we're giving away professorships, by the way, uh, at our news quiz at the end of the show. Nice. Oh, how, good. how do you think I got mine? <laughs> and next to me is Chuck Nevius, a.k.a. C.W. Nevius. He's a columnist for the Press Democrat. He's a former columnist for pretty much every place in the area. <laughs> and he writes the Letter from San Francisco newsletter. So, good to see you, Chuck. Currently unemployed. <laughs> Let's get on to our roundtable. First topic, a couple months ago, of course, Russia sent in tens of thousands of troops into Ukraine. Um, A result has been an upheaval of international politics and an unexpected unity among the democratic European and North American nations. Now, we're not a foreign relations program. We're not going to uh, dissect the war and and the war aims. However, um, I do want to talk about how this huge issue is impacting the American political scene and the American political actors. So let's start with you, Dan. Uh, President Joe Biden has been leading this coalition of democratic uh, countries responding to, to uh, the Russian invasion. Uh, the first broad question, how do you think he's done so far? Well, it's really interesting, uh, John, to look at the American public's reaction to Biden. 
issue by issue um, on whether we should be sending financial support, humanitarian aid, military aid. On every single issue, the American public is almost completely in line with what Biden is doing. Yet they still give him very lukewarm ratings on how he's handling the crisis. And it's, it's a little bit puzzling. Uh, two theories. One is that a lot of voters remembering the very chaotic nature of the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan still hold that against him and that they're somewhat suspicious of him on the, on the world stage. The other explanation is that our country has just become so extraordinarily and deeply polarized that no Republican will ever give him credit for anything, even if it's what they want. Mm-hmm. And no Democrat will ever say that they disapprove of him, even if he's doing things with which they disagree. Could be a combination of the two. But either way, what that means for Biden politically is it's unlikely that this becomes either a benefit or a detriment to him and the Democrats politically this fall. If anything, it becomes almost a distraction that makes it more difficult for him to talk about the economic issues and be heard on them in a way that he would like to because so much public attention is focused on Eastern Europe. Marisa, we did see some reports, I guess, from Politico, if maybe elsewhere, about senior Biden officials kind of worrying that he was being distracted by the Ukraine mm. war from domestic stuff. Do you think that matters? Does it, does it, do California voters want him focusing on inflation and, and other such issues? Or is there some sort of a rallying behind the rallying around the flag? Sort of I mean, thing? we want him to do it all. That's what we do, right? As Americans, we're like, yes, do that and inflation. I mean, I think you're right. I do think some of that disconnect is certainly the polarization. I think it's probably also the fact that most of us are not foreign policy experts. And so I think we have a sense in America that we're like, no, don't drag us into another war, but also respond with force, right? And so I think that there's this sense of like, how could he possibly be doing everything if we're not, you know, whether it's instituting a no-fly zone or actually like engaging, even though if we engaged, that would not go well either, I think, politically. Um, so, So I do think that's part of it. I mean, certainly this runs the risk of taking away, I mean, not just distracting from, but undermining some of those issues in terms of like, look at what it's doing to inflation and gas prices. And that's not good for Democrats. Um, I'm just like less willing to make any predictions in where are we may second Um, things move so fast and like, who knows what things will look like in Ukraine by the time we're getting to election time this fall. So I think, you know, I think Dan's right. If it's sort of the stasis, like likely it's, it's maybe, not a net nothing, but you can see a situation where this could go in many different directions and it could be bad or good for Joe Biden, depending on all the other things we're going to talk about too: inflation, criminal justice. I mean, like, I just feel like politics moves so fast these days. It's like really hard to game the stuff out anymore. But would you say that barring something absolutely extraordinary over there for the good or the bad, it's more likely that the election is going to be Influenced by domestic policy. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, just check. I think absolutely. I mean, in general, they are, though, yeah. right? Even at times where we seem obsessed with foreign politics, I mean, the truth is Americans mostly care about what's happening right in front of them. We all remember George Herbert Walker Bush's, what was it, 90% approval rating went on to lose the reelection. Yeah. Chuck, what do you think so far? I'm one of those crackpots who doesn't really understand why Joe Biden's approval isn't higher. I understand that Afghanistan was a mess for the first two days, but after that, they got everybody out. They basically did it. He's now saddled with two things, Ukraine and inflation, neither of which he can do much about. 
I mean, inflation famously is something that presidents have a terrible time handling. I remember Gerald Ford had win buttons, whip inflation now, which was just simply an idea to jawbone it. Hopefully, if we talk about it enough, inflation will go down. We're furious with him because initially he wasn't doing enough with COVID. He's done a good, pretty good job with COVID. COVID is actually, actually, I almost wonder if we got so involved in the idea of attacking the, the establishment of the president that we have not been able to, to say, because you're right, all, all of the things he does, and even the COVID response and even the inflation response and gas prices are going down, none of that seems to be having an effect on his political future. And I just am baffled by it. I think he's, he's making the effort. He's trying to do a lot of things, but many of them are really, really difficult problems that I think he's doing a good job with. So, I, as I say, it's a crackpot theory, but that's, that's where I am. Someone I've said, and, and personally I, I would put some credence to this, so during the 1980s, you know, the word spin master, uh, spin meister, well, whatever version of it, kind of came into uh, vogue, at least among political nerd circles. Um, Bill Clinton had you know, uh, uh, his folks who were very good at kind of arguing his case. And he was, of course, great at arguing his case publicly. Um, Tony Blair, you know, people got really sick of his spin team, yet he had people out there who were constantly saying, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, this is why it's good for you, this is why we need your support. I mean, lots of people have commented, Biden doesn't have that. And when he does talk to people, to the public, in his State of the Union address, the response tends to be favorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His numbers did go up after the State of the Union. Um, but he doesn't have his war room. He doesn't have his spin meisters out there. Well, or if they are, they're right. very quiet. I mean, I think they're out there, but, like, the, the landscape is so different now. Like, you have to consider just the fact that, like, Fox News exists. And all they do is spin things for, well... We can debate who who they're spending things for, but it's certainly not Joe Biden, right? <laughs> and, and I think that, and then that has fractured into even more extreme. You know, you look at the OANs and the America First. I mean, yeah, sure, MSNBC kind of does some of that, but you just don't have the same sort of concerted media push on the left that you do on the right. And I think that it's, and, and, and because of the fact that, like, the way you actually win a lot of elections is in the individual races, it's like it, it feels like, like the Democrats just don't have a cohesive message. I think there's a frustration that the Democrats are not pushing back harder. No, no, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that viral video, where's the woman from Michigan or Indiana about when the woman, the other woman accused her of being a groomer and she gave this impassioned. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the senator. And that went viral. And people said, this is what we should be doing. Now, is that what we should be doing? I don't know. It appears that the, that the Democratic Party has said, don't antagonize them. And the Republicans are going, here's another hot-button issue. Here's another hot-button issue. We're going to send immigrants to Washington, D.C. We're going to say, don't say gay. We're, all these, it's, the thing about Democrats do policy, and Republicans are doing outrage. So, uh, as, as, as my guests from New Jersey and Hawaii and Tobago all know, um, I need to admit that I am a recovered spinmeister. <laughs> I spent many of the best years of my life fruitlessly spinning on behalf of a variety of candidates and causes. Um, but I think I think both of you make a couple of make really good points. Um, one, this is a more fractured media universe, and even if you look past Fox and MSNBC, a social media era means that everyone is a spinmeister. Mm-hmm. And so for the type of people who had credentials 
a generation ago to appear on cable television and pontificate about what a smart thing or a dumb thing the president was doing, they don't get heard to the degree that they once did. Now, I don't know that it's a partisan uh, uh, issue completely, Marisa. Uh, no question, Fox occupies what I'll just diplomatically call a unique place on our, on our media landscape. <laughs> but Barack Obama and Bill Clinton managed to marshal those forces on their behalf. And for Joe Biden, with the ex- exception of Jen Psaki, who very valiantly and lonely fights from the White House podium every day, you really don't hear that. The term I'll use is not spinmeister. You don't hear that echo chamber. And one thing I know we'll talk about more when we get to domestic policy tonight is because uh, a lot of the divisions in the Democratic Party over immigration, over criminal justice, over other issues have gotten so deep, it means that the people who would normally be echoing the Biden message either aren't doing so or aren't doing so as strenuously. So I think your core point is the right one, John, but it's got less to do with political hacks and more to do with a party that's figuring out Exactly which of, two di- which of two directions, huh? Which of several <laughs> directions to, uh, to go in. Though so if he, sorry to stop. Oh, go ahead. But, but if he himself, President Biden, communicated more often, more directly, um, do you think that would help? Or do you think he, did, at this point in his life, does not have that in him? You know, he goes to the correspondence dinner. He gives a pretty good performance and a rousing speech at the end. And the story is that his, his tie is crooked. You know, and there literally were people in his, you know, in his group who were up there saying, straighten your tie. Straighten. This is going to be a Saturday Night Live skit. We know it is, you know. Tiegate. Yeah, Tiegate. There you go. <laughs> and we saw today, this weekend, in the New York Times, there's a three-part series on Tucker Curls. There would have been a time when that would have, I don't know if it would have taken him down, but that would have been damaging. And the next thing we saw on Twitter was Tucker Carlson holding that up and laughing like crazy. For anyone who hasn't heard about it briefly, this series was about... The the, the New York Times is writing a three-part series, and it is long. This is pages and pages of of taking the the author, authors, uh, watched over 1,500 episodes of Tucker Carlson. Poor things. I mean... I know. Can we just... Give a shout out to those American heroes. And bonuses are on the way, I am sure. I I agree. Or or they watched one episode 1,500 times. Well, yeah. Probably the same. (laughs) Yeah, or watched one episode and said, that's good for 1,500 times, because I'm sure it's the same thing. And they they call it the most racist show that's ever been on TV. And they had all these examples, and they went through the entire entire thing. And I don't think it's going to touch him. You know, he's the most racist guy on TV. I don't think they think it's going to touch him, though. Like, right? right? I mean, if you. Yeah, no, because if you read. And listen to what they're saying. It's like the reason he's doing this is because he has amassed an insane amount of viewers and power. Right. And so, like, I mean, we're just in such a different world than we were in 1994 or whatever. Right. Like it is not like I think. Sure. Could Biden go out more? Could he do more of like what that state senator did? Because I think that that's one thing that plays well for him is like moral outrage. And, you know, let's be clear. He's like an old white dude, like he can say some of this stuff that is not going to land the same way coming from like AOC and for the moderates. But I mean, that's, he, he's the president. Like we're going to yeah. see a couple of speeches. Just, just, you've to, had just a, to be you've clear had. though, um, you say old white dude, not as a bad thing, correct? <laughs> in this context, no. I'm a little sensitive. And not in our context. <laughs> but you've had but a like, candidate, I'll bet, Dan. 
<laughs> who you're a little bit afraid to put in front of a live mic. And I think you're a little afraid to put Biden in front of a live mic. Chuck, I think that's a great point. I mean, Joe Biden, even when he was younger than us, <laughs> was a self... He described himself as a gaffe. As a gaffe. Yeah. And jokes aside, his staff, uh, while largely leak-proof, have let it be known occasionally to reporters that they are deeply worried that if he is exposed to the media on too frequent a basis, he will say and do things that will create more problems than they'll solve. So he has done fewer interviews. He has done fewer news conference than his predecessors from either party as a way of preventing against that. Um, Semi-successful. But I think before we get caught up in Biden gaffes, because that's, again, either part of his charm or, or part of what you despise about him, either way, the point that you guys were making about the broader landscape is, is the important one. John, I know you hate it when I do this, but two books I'll recommend uh, to the audience. No, I won't He's not recommending books again. It's the week to week book club. So. <laughs> okay. I, I won't read them out loud this time. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll recommend two books. One is called Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist. And the second is simply called Them by Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska. And I have my students read them simultaneously. I mean, not like this, but <laughs> week, you know, week in, week out. Um, and you have, a, you have a very progressive columnist and a very conservative senator, both making the points that all three have you made, mm -hmm. is that we have become such a polarized electorate and such a polarized society that neither Tucker Carlson nor the New York Times really cares one whit what the other's audience thinks because they know they can't win them over anyway. So they might as well just stoke the fires for their true believers on the left or the right. And not surprisingly, the politicians who talk to the New York Times or to Tucker Carlson follow their cues. I want to push back on that, though, because what the New York Times is doing is journalism. And what Tucker Carlson is doing is outrage. So what I should do, though, is clarify that I'm not equating the two, not by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm sorry if it came across that way. What I'm talking about is two very, very polarized and very, very different audiences that take one of those two voices very seriously and dismiss the other one entirely. Right. Your fair. point is a fair I one. just do want to make that clear, though, because I think what we end up doing when we talk about this sometimes is, like, conflating what is happening mostly on the right. I mean, certainly there are extremists on the left. And, but, but, like, especially with media, like, as if it's a tit-for-tat between what you've seen. And I think that the truth is, if those of us in the mainstream media were actually, like, willing to... I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of liberal journalists and all of that, right? But I think most of us come to work every day and, and try to be fair and do our jobs um, in a fair manner. And 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 I don't think it's going to offend anybody to say, like, that's not Tucker Carlson's job, right? He, he's not even trying. Um, so I do think it, it's sort of dangerous to our fourth estate if we go down that road too much and sort of act as if, you know, the, the mainstream media, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think just in general, the way we talk about this stuff, it often leads to this, like, oh, it's this, this versus that. When like, the truth is like, you know, when I write a story about climate change now or white supremacy, I don't need like equal voices on both sides because we can just decide that one is not acceptable. I'll be very short. Huh? That's never happened. There was a period of time with the whole Trump revolution when I was so outraged that these people, they're not listening, they're not paying attention. And at this point, I've kind of given up on that. It's not that the truth is not available. The truth is available. The, pr the truth appears in the New York Times. Journalists are writing those things. Those people are not only 
not reading it. They're actively rejecting it as the truth. And I think that's the new reality, and that's what's really scary. Well, and you know, confirmation bias has existed for as long as human beings have existed. It just hasn't dominated politics to this degree. If what I hear, the new piece of information I hear, reinforces what I already believe, then I will accept it. If it challenges what I already believe, then I will reject it. And Maurice's point is exactly right. The comparison between the media outlets is unfair. But I would suggest uh, to an audience that I know skews ever so slightly to the left that you do find on the far extremes of both sides that same unwillingness to listen to those with whom you disagree or to talk to them. And fixing it ultimately does have to come from both sides. And we'll we'll talk about the other uh, wing in just a moment. Um, I want to tie together just something, uh, one of my earlier questions with some of what we've just been talking about, which is that also with this huge polarization, with all of these incredibly safe, uber gerrymandered districts, you get a lot more candidates who are not able to to defend their, their, their stance against someone who disagrees with them or to get into an actual like British-style political debate because they don't have to in order to get reelected. They're, all they have to do is say the right things in their district and, and to the groups that largely agree with them, and they're going to get their 70 80% re-election numbers, um, whereas if they're in more of a so-called purple district, um, they have to know that the opposition isn't some necessarily you know, an easily painted thing. The opposition is their next-door neighbor and such, and they have to have more of that regular give and take. Yeah, there was <clears throat> I'm I, I don't quote me on the statistic, but the Cook Political Report did an analysis. <laughs> but uh, it, See the it microphone. Was this where like there's only like maybe 20 districts out of 435 that Biden won that that were like even going to be close to to any sort of competition, right? And what's crazy here in California is like when I started reporting on politics Many decades ago, many, many, mm-hmm. no, um, but like 20 years ago in, in California, nobody cared about congressional races here. And now we actually have some of the only competitive congressional races in the United States. Because um, we have because every we district have, in commission. And I'm going to let Dan take that one. Good, good. <laughs> yes. Um, because several years ago in their, that, infinite, right? yeah. in their infinite wisdom, California voters passed a ballot initiative they took the redistricting pol- uh, powers away from the politicians themselves and gave it to a citizens commission. I always used, like, used to like to say that letting legislators draw their own districts is like said, letting teenagers set their own curfews. <laughs> and while it's not a perfect process, the abject self-interest is gone. And so we do right. see competitive yeah. races. Or Mike has picked their own dessert. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, quick statistic on this. Um, his is going to be right. <laughs> so before the redistricting commission began drawing these lines in 2012, the previous 10 years, five congressional elections, uh, we then had 53 congressional districts in California. So multiply by five, that's 265 elections for the House of Representatives that took place over a 10-year period. In 264 of those 265 elections, the incumbent was reelected or a member from their party was elected to replace them. Over that 10-year period, we had one single seat change from one party to the other. The first election that the lines were drawn by a nonpartisan commission, we saw several of those seats yeah. change hands. And now we have, I don't know, what, four or five, like, really interesting races this year. Um, but I think that points up the idea, which is, if you're outraged about this, then do something about it. 
Great point. I mean, it's still a democracy. And I understand that, you know, rural areas, small rural areas have, are maybe disproportionately represented by conservative voices, but you have to be able to go into those areas and convince them that you have a... You have a it's like the what's the matter with, with Kansas situation. Kansas should be very democratic. Many of the values of, the, of democratic candidates should be Kansas values, and they're, and they're not. And those people got together and said, we need a redistricting commission. I mean, what do we have? Something like that. That's what we need, okay? Don't Democrats vastly outnumber Republicans in the United States? Isn't that true? No. Oh. Um, it's actually roughly even. Is it? Um, but uh, if you didn't see it, I'd recommend, for those of you who don't have the time to read two books between now and tomorrow morning. <laughs> oh, he's doing it's it a terrific, uh, terrific op-ed in this morning's New York Times by two young women in Maine who talked about the Democratic Party's challenge in rural communities and was making precisely the same point you were, Chuck, which is you can't convince people of something unless you're willing to talk to them. And that is a lesson for both parties. Change it. It's a democracy. Okay, so rural areas tend to be very, very uh, polarized on the conservative side. Liberal areas, San Francisco, very, very polarized on the left and the progressive, which we'll just say is the further to the left side. In that framing, uh, let's discuss the recall election of San Francisco's district attorney, Chesa Bodine. Oh, nobody has any opinions about that. (laughs) None whatsoever. We However, talk about that. in June, San Francisco voters will decide the fate of the DA, who came into office in January 2020 on, a, on promises of decarceration and alternatives to jail. A year and a half later, after he was elected, Bodine may could be replaced. So, Marisa, I want to start with you this time. You've been uh, moderating debates. You've been interviewing <laughs> these folks. Uh, tell us how we got here. How did... 18 months after he was in office. How much time do you have? I mean, starting back in the 80s, John, we had... No, I mean, but seriously, like this... I I do think if we can all just for a second put aside our personal feelings about Chesa Boudin, um, this is part of a long story in America about criminal justice and criminal justice reform. And I think that folks like Chesa... Uh, Boudin and George Gascon in L.A. are kind of coming up against a moment that has been, you know, 30, 40 years in the making. Um, I will say, as somebody who's covered Chase Boudin for several years, you know, I'm sure I think in some cases he's made his own situation as well as all politicians do. But just talking about the kind of landscape here, you know, we had a state that until 10, 15 years ago was just putting everyone else to shame in terms of per capita incarceration. We had a Supreme Court order to overturn that, um, and that led to a lot of criminal justice reforms of recent years, and I think a real rethinking by a lot of folks. Um, on the left and the right, if you all recall, Grover Norquist was among the f- people who helped push a lot of these initial reforms in the early 2010s. Um, and it, and it you know, often came from kind of differing points of view. From the conservative point of view, it was a lot about resources and whether we were kind of spending too much money on prisons. I think on the left, there was an agreement of that, but also the sort of human cost of things. Um, And so out of this, we've seen, you know, people like Boudin. This is such a hard one because it's like both about that bigger landscape and then also just about the weirdness of San Francisco politics, our ranked choice voting system, the fact that the mayor decided to kind of try to put her thumb on the scale at the end of that race when the former DA left and uh, 
she appointed Susie Loftus, who was running in the same race with Chase Abudin. And in hindsight, like looking at that, I, I wonder if Susie would have lost if that hadn't happened. I think that turned off some people that that London Breen had, had done that. Um, but, yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, it's been a very bizarre time in the last two years uh, in generally when we talk about crime. Um, San Francisco's always had a huge property crime program, as you mentioned, a problem. And I think Boudin has been um, both kind of come in at a bizarre moment with COVID and what we've really seen nationally, I will say, is an increase in violent crime, which is not actually what we've seen as much in San Francisco. But I think we tend to conflate a lot of things when we talk about criminal justice. We talk about property crime. We talk about homelessness. We talk about violent crime. We say that we're talking about different things, but in our heads, we kind of put them all together. Um, and so I think that, you know, we've seen a very effective campaign pushing back against Boudin um, and him, you know, being a former public defender, making some missteps and a lot of emotions around it all, getting us to where we are now, um, which is, I think, a pretty good sense that he's probably not going to make it through this election. Chuck, what's your view? Me? Yeah, you. (laughs) I'll say a couple of things. First of all, when there's a perception that crime is high, the DA always gets it. That's just the deal. In this city, not anywhere else? It happened in Arlo Smith. It happened with Kamala Harris. Yeah. It happens with the DA. That's the deal. We also have to address the fact that the judges are not helping. You know, a lot of the decisions that they're making are not helpful decisions for Chesa Bodine, for the city. They're often very lenient. They're releasing people. I don't know if Chesa Bodine is a good DA, but he is a lousy politician. And that's hurting him. He sticks his foot in his mouth. He has come up with a lot of poor ideas. He's lost half his staff who've either resigned or been fired. And worse than that, those people are not only leaving the office, they are actively promoting him to get out of the, out of the office. We love a narrative. I know we do. And I know Dan wants to talk about this. He's got a and book. he has some books. I know. He has some books. <laughs> But I have heard this narrative over and over about how, you know, oh, we went so progressive and now we're going the other way. You know, you know, Mayor Breed, you know, she said to fund the police and now she's changed her mind. She never said to fund the police. She never said that. That's a great narrative, but that's not true. And it's not the school board wasn't recalled because they were progressive. They were terrible. <laughs> they were extremely unpopular people personally. And Chessa has made a lot of mistakes, political mistakes. And if he loses this, I think that'll be the reason. He's, he's got a lot of wins against him. And it's not just Republicans funding. No, no, no. I didn't say that. It, I think, you know, I think he's, he's miscast. I don't think it's a great job for him. I don't doubt his motives for a moment. I think he's got a lot of, uh, of ideas that may work. But when people feel threatened by crime, and, and we finally admitted this, for a while they were saying, this, oh, the crime stats aren't so bad. Well, they aren't historically, but it doesn't matter if you've got your car smashed in, right? right? And that's like, what Chessa and Bill, Bill Scott, the chief of police, finally had a press conference and said, we get it. The stats aren't that bad, but you don't feel safe. You don't feel safe. We've got to address that. And, he, and they have to address that. And I think he's done a poor job of addressing it. Before we go national, can I just add, like, I I agree with what Chuck's saying. I think that at the end of the day, 
you know, you have a job. I was joking before we came out here that, like, we're at a point where, like, you know, if if it's foggy, we blame Chesa. If, like, my bread went moldy, we blame Mm -hmm. Chesa. I mean, it really has become sort of this narrative in this city. And yet, to your point, like, what matters is how people feel and if they feel heard. And also if they feel like are the people at the top are working together to solve it. And I think that... Again, like this was a ranked choice election. He did not get a majority of votes that were first cast. This wasn't a runoff where people really got to vet each candidate. We could do an entire hour on ranked choice voting. Um, We'd all have some feelings, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think. What I'm interested in sort of as somebody who's been covering this both as like I live here, I I, I live all of this, but I've also been covering this broader criminal justice debate. Um, I actually interviewed today uh, Polly Class's sisters who were 12 and 6 when she was abducted and murdered and are now speaking out against what her Polly's father, their uh, step and half sisters, um, promoted in in the wake of that, which was three strikes and something that they felt like really did not go in the direction that it should have. And so, like, I do think we have to put this in that context. And yet, like, at the same time, he is being judged as this DA and he doesn't have a good relationship with the police chief. He doesn't have a good relationship with the mayor. They've done nothing to help that either. Like, they they have no interest in it. Um, I will say politically, if he is recalled, I think it's going to be fascinating because London Breed will own everything. She will have the school board that she appointed. She will have the DA that she appointed. She already appoints the police chief. And regardless of how you're voting, I don't want to be the first to break it to you, but there will still be crime in San Francisco on June 8th, regardless like whether or not Chase Obini is recalled. And you, and you said that you didn't like to make predictions. Come on. <laughs> I will make that prediction. I feel okay. comfortable in that, even right. after Trump. Do you have a book to recommend? <laughs> yeah. just- well, hey. well, Marisa noted that, you know, we could go back to the 1980s. You go back to the 70s, we had a police chief in San Francisco. I say we, I wasn't here at the time, but some of y'all had a police chief in San Francisco who was arguing many of the same things Chesa Bodine has been arguing. Uh, this is Hangusto, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Hangisto. Sorry? Hangisto. Hangisto, okay. Yeah. Um, and he... Richard Hangisto. Richard, thank you. And he went was on he to the one a, who painted all the cars pink? He's who what? Painted the police cars pink. I don't know about that. Did you ever hear about that? It's before my time. It happened, it happened. Oh, we could do a Google whole it. hour okay. on that. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Okay, well, the point being that they're... they're he must have been. It was, Whether it's yeah. cyclical or not, I mean, that's what's definitely what his policies as police chief were, trying to work for, you know, racial equity and decarceration and alternative forms of punishment and such. Um, and, uh, you know, followed by the 1980s and the 90s. Right. So, I mean, they're... I mean, the irony, though, is if you'd had Bill Scott up here, our police chief, he would talk about the same things. Like, I actually think that's one thing. And, you know, we're going to talk. This is a national problem for Democrats right now, for sure. Um, But I think one thing I've noticed is that the rhetoric is so different, even among more conservative candidates and others. So 20 years ago, it was like, lock them up, throw away the key. We're out. Now it's like we understand that we need to rehabilitate people. This is conservative Republicans running for attorney general telling me this. Like you can't just look at everyone as a nail and you're the hammer. And the fact that that's even the rhetoric to me does tell us that we've come somewhere. I don't know where, but <laughs> Dan. So I, I think the I think, Marisa, your point about looking at this in a national context does make a lot of sense. If you think back, it's been just 
almost exactly two years since the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And think about the roller coaster we've been on on this issue since then. In 2020, Bodine's election here, George Gascon's in Los Angeles, Lori Lightfoot's in Chicago. There's examples all over the country um, of a group of mayors and district attorneys getting elected on a very restorative justice type of platform. And my own feeling, as albeit a former Republican but a longtime independent, is I think the Democrats did what both parties are exceedingly good at. They overreacted to an opportunity, and the next thing you know, you had this huge defund the police argument going to the point where the President of the United States said three times in his State of the Union address, not just once, but three times, fund the police, fund the police, fund the police, essentially playing defense on the issue because the conversation had moved so far so quickly. And what we're seeing now, not surprisingly, and the same thing happens when Republicans overreact on an issue, um, is a shift back toward the, toward the center. Um, I don't know that Bodine or Gascon could have been elected if they were running this year instead of in 2020. And so what you're seeing now, and Marissa, you make the uh, exact right point, not a return to the late 20th century, lock them up and throw away the key. I remember after three strikes and you're out passed. Then some of you may remember we passed a one strike and you're out on certain types of violent criminals. And at one point had a state legislature on the floor of the state Senate saying sometimes one strike is too many. And it was like minority. Many getting yeah. just very scared about what you did before a strike. <laughs> so we're, 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 strike, we're not yeah. going that to that. And yeah. we, have a, we have a marriage race in Los Angeles now where I'm only barely exaggerating when I say the only two issues that are being talked about are crime and homelessness. And what you're watching is not the lock them up the message. What you're essentially watching from the more centrist of the candidates is a message along the lines of, we need to address these questions more aggressively, but we don't need to sacrifice who we are in order to do so. And that is a more measured and a more careful and more balanced message than we heard during the last tough on crime political wave, and I don't know where I know. I, how do they actually put that into policy? Can I just connect one dot here, though, which is the defund the police thing? Sure. There are people in the Democratic Party, even some elected people who said abolish police in 2020. But the right did a very good messaging job of painting the entire Democratic Party with that, of making it an either or, right? That Because if you talk to, again, not necessarily the most extreme activists, but I would say a lot of people, they're not actually on the left arguing that you need to, you know, end policing or anything like that. They're saying, does it make sense to send an armed officer to a mental health call? There, you know, like there's a lot of nuance in there. and We're not good at nuance in politics. And I think that, that the fact that Democrats are so much on their heels on this is really less of a actual policy like debate that of anything that got instituted and more of a messaging debate about how you talk about this and and again like which is you know benefited by the fact that you have these types of conversations in cities like this and people like Michael Schellenberger running for you know for uh, governor and and talking um, and really people positioning themselves again also in the DA's race to say oh well you know, I'm a progressive, but and it, it, I, I'm interested to see kind of how that plays out, because if these folks who are, you know, critical of Chase Boudin, who are 
running against the governor from kind of the center, if it all plays out, that's not actually where the policy will go. It won't go to nuance, right? Like, well, you have you have Biden has called for a very substantial increase in funding for police training. The whole idea is to spend more to make sure police do their jobs as well as they can, respecting right. the rights of citizens, as opposed to the kind of excesses we're seeing. Right. And to your point, neither party has any idea what to do with that. The Democrats are Way confused because it's not defund or, or more fund. Republicans look at that and they think it's tough on crime, but they're not sure. So they just say he's old and that's, uh, and that's that. Right, right. But the irony is, is people is, like... His yeah. bow tie is crooked, too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I've I would just say two things. One is nobody saw that George Floyd video and said that's how policing should work. Nobody, for being away nobody saw that. Nobody saw that. They killed a guy right in front of us. And that caused a reaction. That caused a reaction against police training. There's no question. There's no question. And that has to be done. And the other thing I'd say, just to get granular, is we did Chesa did win the election. He did beat Susie Loftus, but there were two moderate candidates. Nancy Tung was also a moderate candidate, even more, uh, more to the right than Susie Loftus. And that split the vote. And he won by a very narrow margin. So the idea that he had a, a huge amount of support coming into this is, is really not true. Now, he got the job and he could do what he wanted with it. And, and as I said, I, I feel like he's made some mistakes. Well, you, said, you also said earlier that he may or may not be a good district attorney, but he's a lousy politician. What you're talking about here is something all politicians do. Every single politician I've ever seen, state, local, national, Democrat or Republican, the one thing they all have in common is once they get elected, even if it's by the tiniest and the slimmest of margins through recount after recount, right. they think a week after the election that they were giving the broadest, most sweeping mandate for the most radical change that they could ever imagine. Right. And right. Bodine did that, but he's certainly not unique in that regard. Although, did he? Like, I, I think it's an interesting question. Like, I don't know. I think you can question like the competence whether he has the right people in the jobs all of those things but the data does not bear out that anything super dramatically different is actually happening in san francisco the chronicle has done an incredible job digging into it um and i just think that again back to your point about how do people feel when we talk about a lot of politics and especially something like public safety and criminal justice and things that affect you like your family directly, right? I mean, way more so than most of the stuff we're talking about national politics. It doesn't really matter. It matters how you feel and what your sort of like visceral viewpoint is. Um, so there's been a fair amount of reporting saying that the Asian American vote in San Francisco strongly was behind the recall, supporting of the recall. Uh, the San Francisco Standard did some looking at the numbers and saying, well, the turnout of Asian Americans wasn't are you talking about the school board? School board or the I'm sorry. Idea. I'm sorry, school board. Yeah. Right? But I'm going to tell you Although probably together, also right? I think it's also getting um, yeah. yeah, because actually that was kind of the point I was getting at. But uh, just with the, so with the school board, their, their turnout for the, that recall wasn't necessarily higher than, than you know, the past normal election for it. However, and this was the quote from the person uh, who gave him that, that uh, statistic, um, those Asian Americans in the city who came out to vote for that special election, quote, sure as hell voted for the recall, unquote. Um, there's been a lot of Asian American uh, energy behind recalling Chesa Bodine. Right. And focusing not on the general crime thing, but on some very specific cases of people killed by people 
that the DA released. Yes, yes. Who were in, who had been, you know, well, the, arrested for felonies, and they were released on basically the, you know, where the McAuliffe like. story is, is the one that McAllister. Yeah, that George Gascon, uh, his as he left office, they had McAuliffe in in custody, and they felt like they were offering twenty to twenty five years in prison, and he was he was uh, released by Chesa Bodine. It's terrible, terrible situation where this guy went on a kind of a reign of terror where he stole a car, he, he had waved a gun, he was, uh, he was impaired. But you're a couple he ran into He ran into two women and killed okay. them. Yeah. I think also the Asian community says we have been attacked. And Chesa Bodine, this, this guy who was pushed down in the, in the Sunset District, an elderly man was pushed down and killed. And Chesa Bodine said, yeah, the guy was kind of having a temper tantrum. He was kind of having a bad day. That's, you know, whatever you do in terms of prosecution, that's not the response. That that community wants to be heard that we're concerned. And I think he's a victim of self-fulfilling prophecy, which is he came in and people heard him say, we're going to be softer on crime because we're going to rehabilitate these people. Then this happens and it causes them to say, see, we knew this was going to happen. This is exactly what he's doing. And I'd go back again to say every DA has less power than people think they do. And every DA gets blamed every time there's a lot of of crime. But he hasn't helped himself. John, you made a point about the Asian Pacific community's reaction on this. And once again, I broaden that not just nationally, uh, but to a wider range of communities of color. (laughs) There's a pretty considerable amount of public opinion polling that shows not just here in California, but nationally within the Democratic Party. Um, Asian Pacific and Latino and African-American voters tend to be somewhat more centrist and sometimes conservative on criminal justice issues than white registered Democrats. And this is, uh, this is one of the keys that helped Joe Biden get the nomination when Jim Clyburn and other African-American community leaders rallied to his side that he was more of a classic centrist mm-hmm. Democrat, and that ended up being a very reassuring, uh, reassuring message. Uh, these are all communities that obviously voted overwhelmingly Democratic in the past, and I think in all likelihood will for the foreseeable future and beyond. But criminal justice issues really does present uh, a more complicated challenge for Democrats here. Uh, Bodine is seeing it here in, in San Francisco, and the Democrats in Congress are navigating exactly the same challenge. And why is that? Because these are the communities that largely are most impacted by crime, right? I mean, a lot of our policies in California historically were driven by, and and I will say one thing, I've actually been doing some deep dive into this McAllister case, and I do think it's more complicated than just chase a let this guy out. I mean, as all are, and I and I think it speaks to that old adage, like, anecdote makes bad policy. It does. Like, we should not be using one case in general to write our laws and policies. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you look at what we understand about crime, which is shockingly little, honestly, about, like, what drives it, especially violent crime, what we know is that actually, like, policing makes a bigger difference than prosecuting, Right. Criminals don't generally like pull out a calculator and work out like what the enhancements could be and how many years they might face. But if you have a certainty of being caught, regardless of what the punishment is, you're less likely to commit a crime. And so in a weird way, that should be a sweet spot, right, for Democrats to say, like, okay, we can embrace good policing. We can talk about the way to 
you know, train police officers better and to have them work with the community and partner with them so that we aren't showing up with our guns drawn at a mental health call. Um, but, yeah, I guess I'll just go back so that we don't do nuance well in politics <laughs> and that a lot of this, um, you know, it's very easy to point to one horrific case in which two families lost. There, there, there I have other examples. Of I mean, course, of course. And saying, there are a million. You could also do this for, but you could well. also do this for Anne-Marie Schubert in Sacramento and point to individual cases where she did not press charges or where, you know, take that horrific shooting. Why wasn't that guy in jail? She's blaming Prop 57. Well, she didn't go for the kidnapping. I mean, the bottom line is, if we look at criminal justice through a prism of individual cases, it's very easy to litigate really any side of them. He needs and, a good answer you know. to that, and he hasn't had one. Yeah. Well, in this case, that's yeah. politics, right? Not. Yeah. And this gets back to Chuck's earlier point about narrative. If I were to ask you how many African-American men in this country died at the hands of police officers over the last 10 years, I, have to admit, I would not know that data point, and I don't know that many people here would also but we all immediately recognize the name George Floyd. And whether it's George Floyd and Willie Horton and Breonna Taylor on crime, whether it's equally appalling issues being used to highlight an injustice on the left, Stalin said, you know, one, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Mm -hmm. And so turning it into a narrative, into the kind of storyline that you're talking about, for better or worse, is the way we make public policy. Not just here in San Francisco, but in most democracies. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, let's move to another topic. And not all news is bad. <laughs> oh, not good. all war oh, and insurrection and oh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. I mean, for example, here, I can't in the, on that. here in the state of California, we have a state budget that is in good shape. Um, perhaps spectacularly, if temporarily so. So one recent estimate put California's budget surplus at $68 billion dollars. There are a whole bunch of countries where their individual GDPs is less than $68 billion. So um, start with you, Dan. How confident are you that the uh, Solons in Sacramento will uh, handle that $68 billion with wisdom and long-term planning? It's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a leading question. <laughs> what I do. And yet, but I'll bite. I think they have it nailed. <laughs> I think they've absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Great. Well, our next topic. Good. Okay. No, I mean, al already, uh, you know, we've seen the state's legislative analyst, you know, the bipartisan uh, uh, observer of, of these things, warning that in two or three years, these incredible surpluses will turn into deficit. And they are all but begging the legislature to rely on one-time spending as opposed to making ongoing commitments. The problem if you're a politician, Democrat or Republican, is if you spend money on one thing or cut taxes once, you get credit for it once. If you spend money on something over and over again for many, many years, you get credit for it over and over for your entire political career. So just the natural hunger of politicians is let's spread this around, even given a fiscal reality a couple of years off that it might not be the best idea. The most interesting part of this discussion, which I'd, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on it, is the argument over the gas tax. Now, obviously, gasoline prices are high across the country, even higher in California for all sorts of reasons. In many other states around the country, including those led by Democratic governors, 
there's pretty considered debate going on about whether to suspend the gas tax, whether to reduce it, how else to put money back in the hands of motorists. And here in California, just like on criminal justice, we see two different Democratic parties arguing different sides of this. The Republicans have no relevant voice in this, but you have two Democratic parties arguing about whether or not uh, cutting the gas tax or suspending it is a good or a bad thing. The argument being that on one hand, gasoline prices are incredibly high, and this could be a good way of helping working class voters. But then you have another group of uh, advocates who understandably argue that if gasoline prices are lower, more people will drive, that will impact our climate change agenda. So the question really comes down to, I think, in the eyes of most voters, how far do you drive every day? If you live in a larger urban area, like most of us do, L.A. Or, or, or San Diego, we probably don't drive that many miles each day, and we have some alternatives available to us. So it's really easy to say, well, let's let these prices stay high, because that will discourage driving. That is something that's good when it comes to fighting climate change. On the other hand, in eastern and northern California, where there is no such thing as mass transit, where people have to drive much larger distances to work, those additional costs get pretty stultifying. And so the longer-term question about $68 billion could you know, put us all to sleep if, if we went into enough detail. But I do think this argument about inflation and gasoline taxes is something worth keeping a particular eye on as they, as they move through this over the next several weeks. Um, the, to me, it would almost seem blindingly obvious. You've got people, like on crime, they might be focusing on very specific things that may or may not be reflective of underlying things. That's another argument that, well, we've kind of already had. But on inflation, people are, lots of people are really focused on the gas tax. And so it would seem that, I'll, I'll, I'll make my point yeah, and I'll yeah, shut up no, in a moment, but um, it would seem a really easy political decision to say, we're going to suspend this or reduce it or whatever, or give you a, uh, a rebate or whatever to, to help you for the duration of this this gas emergency, let's call it. Um, and the fact that they're not just kind of reminds me of what Rick Wilson says, that Democrats are holistically bad at politics. Um, I mean... But they are doing... I mean, let's be clear. Okay, so they haven't done it, like, immediately, but the governor proposed that they give a rebate, and his May revise comes out on May 13th, and, like, this is when they're negotiating what that looks like. So... I don't think a gas tax holiday, like, makes policy sense because there's no guarantee that oil companies pass that on. It's also, like, our – the Wall Street Journal – If I can interrupt for just a yeah. second, though, Newsom's plan is not to cut the gas tax for just that reason. It's to give – Right, right, right. Yeah, that's what I was going to get to. Right. Yeah. So, but, but, what, but what Republicans are arguing in Sacramento is, like, you need to, you know, suspend the gas tax increase in July. Guess how much that is? Three cents a gallon. So you would save a buck or two, but that's not going to actually impact the people that are most hurt by inflation. And I think it's important to note that while the gas prices are just insane, um, if you're like me and you have two little boys at home, like that's not where I'm feeling this. It's my grocery bill, right? Like inflation because of not just oil prices, but broader supply chain issues, but largely because of oil prices, all everything's gone up. So what I think Democrats are aiming towards and they will do with a lot of this money. Um, and it's, it'll be interesting to see because I think just on your earlier point about like one time versus ongoing, like 
weirdly, since Jerry Brown, they've been actually relatively good about that. Like they like they got scared enough, but we'll see. The but longer Bra- Jerry's out of sack, the Brown is better. Is be- Brown was better at taming the legislature. Exactly. Yeah. So so what we're seeing. So last week on Thursday, I want to say the Senate came out with their proposal to kind of counter the governor's. Um, his was a more targeted rebate that would be you know. F- something like $400. $400 to each taxpayer if you have a car. They want to go broader. They want to say it's like 200 bucks a person in a family. You don't have to have a vehicle to get it. Um, you get more if you're you know, poor. It phases out if you make over a quarter million dollars a year as a couple. Um, you know, They're trying to do what Democrats do, which is to kind of target this a little more. I think something like that will happen. I think the question is like, is it enough? Does it actually play politically? You've seen how far Biden's checks have gone to his approval rating. I mean, people don't <laughs> seem to remember that from last year. So, like, I think what we're seeing right now politically from what I hear talking to the governor's office and folks in SAC is that lawmakers don't seem as eager on this as maybe John, you would expect. And I think the governor wants, um, I think the governor's office feels like they have to do this or even if it doesn't help as much as it could, it will hurt them more not to. Um, but I do think the gas tax holiday is like a real kind of squishy area when you talk about good policy, because not only does it, there's no guarantee that consumers feel it, it punches a huge hole in our infrastructure budget. And, um, you know, we all just, spent, what, 25 years waiting for an infrastructure bill? But, and I'm not, because you actually convinced me on the whole idea of there's no <laughs> sense that that, there's no promise that that gets passed on yeah. anyway. Um, but, I mean, wouldn't the point be some of that $68 billion goes to replace, if you were to do this, would go to replace the money lost from the um, gas tax holiday? That, that, that's, that's not what they want to do with the money. That's not sexy. <laughs> but, but Marisa makes a great point. Gas, gas prices are up. So are grocery prices. So our rents. The difference is, is when I drive across town, I don't see the cost of bread and milk in really big numbers on every street corner, which makes it a much bigger (laughs) political. Right. And also, like, you going to answer that now? (laughs) It's a reminder to feed my dog. Oh, is your dog okay, Chuck? (laughs) My dog has to take a pill every night at seven and I forget. (laughs) So I set an alarm and it was a stupid alarm. So I set it to a Joni Mitchell song. So it'd be more fun to listen to. And, and now, made, and now, I feel like we should spend the last nine minutes talking about Chuck's dog. <laughs> and now, when my dog hears the river, she runs over and sits down because I'm going to feed her a hot dog with a pill in it. <laughs> that was the Sorry. best Sorry. anecdote we've heard tonight. Sorry. Let's be Sorry. real. <laughs> you were saying, Dan. You've forgotten uh, you what you were remember. saying. I think it was something about Joni Mitchell, but I really don't remember. <laughs> Well, I th- I'll, I'll throw in something here. I, okay, I, I, well, actually, we're, we're nearing the end of, of everything. Um, so let me kind of what? ask an exit question, Life. which is, Planet. in the 2020 elections, what do you think... Oh, actually, so what do you think will be the big issues? And a spanner is something that, Marisa, if you could kind of start, we, you got a text before this uh, oh, program right. about a Supreme Court decision. So looks like SCOTUS is going to overturn Roe v. Wade entirely and Casey. Um, This could change. Politico apparently got a draft uh, decision, which in itself tells you something about the politics of our time, that anyone at the Supreme Court would leak anything. Um, But yes, so if that gets overturned in June, certainly 
I mean, depending on a bunch of factors, like sitting here now, it feels like inflation is probably the root of everything. But as I said earlier, it's real hard to tell. Um, I would definitely put inflation, this Supreme Court decision, um, and maybe it's a toss up between like criminal justice and insurrection slash democracy. Like, I don't know. That could that could play with some voters, maybe. No. Nobody cares. I want to hear Mark Chuck talk more about Joni Mitchell. <laughs> I think it's education. Hmm. I think it's the education system. I think that the Republicans have done a great job of the whole idea of what we can teach, what we can't teach. And I think you've, you're hitting a sweet spot with parents who worry about their, um, their children's education. I think COVID was a huge problem with being out of school. I think we'll look back at that and say it was a mistake to keep students out of school as long as we did. And I would use that $68 million to either increase teacher salaries, increase uh, school funding. We're losing students out of public schools like crazy, and it's, it's a crisis. And I, I think the Republicans have done a great job of making that an issue. It's, a, as Biden would always say, it's a kitchen table issue. Mm-hmm. You're, you're sitting there thinking about this, and... The idea that we're banning books that were and then and for DeSantis, the, don't say gay and then for DeSantis say they're trying to censor you. We, your sense, your. So is that an opening for Dems? It might be. I, I'm here's I'm skeptical of the abortion issue because I I think a lot of people feel like that's what's going to happen. We we stack the court. That's what's going to happen. I think it's going to turn it over to the states. And I read something the other day that what we haven't really paid much attention to is there have been 43 different bills in uh, blue states supporting the right for an abortion. I think, again, if you don't like it, do something about it. You know, if, if that really is upsetting to you, then do something about it. Elect people who will support that. And I, I think that that may happen. I don't know if it'll be a national movement. Yeah. So let's just assume for the sake of grotesque oversimplification that there are four kinds of voters in the world. There are married men, married women, single women, and single men. Those are the four voting groups divided, obviously, by gender and marital status. Married men, maybe not in San Francisco, but in most places around the country, are the most reliable Republican cohort in the electorate by far. Single women, by far, are the most reliably Democratic cohort in the electorate. Single men, um, and I was one for many years, so I remember this, Single men vote in much smaller numbers. They just don't pay as much attention to politics. They might be playing computer games. I don't know what, but they're not voting. Which means that that married women are the most important voters in America. So Uh, Melanie, uh when... There you go. So Mel, when your mom tells you that she's the most important person in the world, every two years she's right. (laughs) And so what, what, what that means here, and this is why I think Chuck's point is such an important one, since the dawn of polling, uh, different issues have played in favor of one party or the other. Education, for decades, has always been an overwhelming Democratic preference by immense margins. In the most recent Washington Post-ABC poll, Democrats still have maintained an advantage on the education issue, but by four percentage points, as opposed to 20 or 30 points like we've seen over the years. So that, yeah. that opportunity yeah. is there. Yeah. Look at Youngkin. Um, exactly. And, you know, Maurice is right. Inflation uh, is not going away between now and November and will certainly drive uh, uh, voters. Um, immigration will be the issue that Republicans use 
to motivate their voters to the polls in this debate over the so-called Title 42, whether sending uh, asylum seekers back to Mexico because of concerns about COVID is splitting the Democratic Party rate now even worse than criminal justice issues. Um, but Marisa only raised it briefly, and it is something we'll all read about tonight or tomorrow morning. Politico did report just before we came on, as she said, that the Supreme Court is preparing to issue uh, a decision not weakening, which had been the common expectation, but actually overturning Roe versus Wade. And what I would suggest to you is that for all the reasons that Democrats are likely to lose Congress this fall, the president's approval ratings, the historic tendencies of voters to support the out parties, inflation, immigration, crime, and so on, the one thing, other than perhaps Donald Trump going back on Twitter, the one thing that could help the Democrats maintain their majority is an absolute overturn of Roe v. Wade to motivate pro-choice voters in a way that has not been the case for many years. Over the years, pro-life voters tend to go to the polls more on the abortion issue than pro-choice voters. And the supposition is particularly among younger voters and particularly among younger female voters. They've never lived in a world without Roe v. Wade. So it's, it's an abstraction to even comprehend such a thing. But a court decision that it's stark, also, if it holds, yeah. I think and your could actually be the one thing. And about married women is really interesting because yeah. the most likely person to have an abortion is someone who's already had children. So... That is probably married women. That's interesting. Well, so thank there. you, all three of you. Um, we're now going to do our news quiz. And this is, what, the first news quiz in two years. So I'm going to ask the same questions I would have asked in February. <laughs> you know what? It may not be different. No. Uh, Wendy is going to be our prize deliverer. We've got some big Ghirardelli chocolate bars and some bags of milk chocolate. So I'll put that there. Um, for those of you who have not been here before, here's how we do it. I'm going to ask a question. If you think you know the answer, raise your hand. I know you're eager to be out and just shout out answers and things because you've been you know, stuck inside. Please don't. Just raise your hand. I'll call on you. If we could maybe raise the lights in the room, that would uh, help me. Because otherwise I'm, <laughs> that would help. I'm kind of like being interrogated here by uh, there we go. the NKVD. Hi. Um, so anyway, if you get the answer correct... Wendy will give you some chocolate. If you do win, please then uh, just listen to the rest of the folks and give them a chance to win. Okay, first question. 73-year-old rock star Ozzy Osbourne uh, has been diagnosed with what? It's actually probably exactly what you would expect these days. Lack of musical ability. Back there? Alzheimer's. Sorry? No. Um, anyone else? Sorry? COVID? That's correct. COVID-19. Okay. Do I remember in two years ago that the questions were more interesting? <laughs> okay. He wants more interesting questions. Okay. A, a British member of parliament resigned after admitting oh. he watched adult videos where? Right there in the front. Sorry. In Parliament, the House of Commons. <laughs> Wendy, right over there. Is that better or worse than the party that those? You just said you wanted it through. interesting. Yeah. I don't. Okay. What sports celebrity has been sentenced to two and a half years in jail over bankruptcy charges, sir? Right there. Boris Becker. Boris Becker. That's correct. Um, in newly re- excuse me, in newly released comments from a 2021 deposition. 
former President Donald Trump said he feared for his life if what was thrown at him at uh, at a peace parties. Uh, pineapples, and in fact, Trump said he feared protesters would hit him with tomatoes, pineapples, and other quote very dangerous fruit at his campaign rallies, so declaring quote you can be tries. killed if that happens unquote. I mean the pineapple seems like the most dangerous out of those, right? right. Has, has anyone thrown a pineapple at a rally? Anyway, we have a winner back there. Cool. Uh, okay. Uh, Russian troops looted millions of dollars of vehicles from a farm equipment dealership in uh, Melitopol, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, probably not, uh, in a city in Ukraine, and they sent this equipment to Chechnya. However, after making the 700-mile journey, the equipment got there, and the Russians were surprised to find what? Ma'am. That's correct. They've been remotely locked. This war is not going well for them. Okay. It looks like Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda will be out of work now as their Netflix show comes to an end. What's the name of it? (laughs) We'll go on to another question. It's okay. Um, uh, The answer was Grace, uh, Frankie and Grace, or Grace and Frankie. Grace and Frankie. The final episodes began streaming last Friday. Um, Let's see. According to a CBS News poll, 70% of American adults are worried about Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that it could lead to what? Ma'am. Nuclear war. That's correct. Right there in the middle on the aisle. I thought this was happier news. I know. I like the Grace and Frankie question better. Do we have to go back to more, like, porn in the parliament? Yeah. (laughs) That'd be fine with me. That'd be better. Uh, Well, here's one that's not fun. Israel's government said Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's comment was unforgivable when he said Adolf Hitler was part what? Right there. Jewish. That's correct. Uh, He said Hitler was part Jewish. Lavrov also said that, quote, for some time, we have heard from the Jewish people that the biggest anti-Semites were Jewish, unquote. His words, not mine. Oh, that's not going to be a happy one. We need ones that are happy for Marisa. Oh, man, that's definitely not. According to a new book by two New York Times reporters, how does GOP Senator Mitt Romney avoid being recognized by Trump supporters when he's out for dinner? Do you see the story today? No. Anyone want to make a guess? He. Yes. Yeah? No, but close. No, <laughs> a great answer. One more try. I don't see any. Okay, he wears hats. Yeah. Uh, both deserve a candy bar. Well, mask or let's see. My pillow CEO Mike Lindell might want to buy a Tesla now that his new account has ah. just been banned on what platform? We had gotten through this whole thing. <laughs> right there on the edge. Twitter. That is correct. His previous account had been banned. Then he set up a new account on Sunday, and on Monday, Twitter said they were banning that one permanently because it violated their rules on evasion of. Bands, actually. <laughs> well, listen, our time it's good together. To know they actually enforce one rule on Twitter. Uh, for the moment, 
Yeah. <laughs> this all could change. Um, I want to thank our excellent panel today, Marisa Lagos, Chuck Nevius, and Dan Schnur. Thank you to each and every one of you who climbed out of your caves at home and came out here to see us in person. It's great to see you in person. Um, as well as thank you to everyone listening and watching online. Please have a great week. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you again in the future. Good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.